This is Nuclear Explained. Welcome to Nuclear Explained. Around the world, every country is affected by malnutrition. Malnutrition is an imbalance between the nutrients your body needs and the nutrients it gets. The world is facing a double burden of malnutrition. Undernutrition and obesity coexist. Both are major risk factors for chronic diseases like cardiovascular diseases, cancer, and diabetes. Aligned with the UN Sustainable Development Goals to end hunger and to ensure good health, nuclear techniques can be used to help combat malnutrition. I'm Joanne Liu. And I'm Ihan Evrensel. Nuclear techniques provide data to determine nutrition trends and to help design interventions for better health. This is important because good nutrition is essential for good health. Good nutrition from an early age supports healthy growth and lasting benefits for individuals and societies. In this episode, you will learn how nuclear techniques, specifically stable isotope techniques, help develop and monitor interventions against malnutrition. These techniques can be used to measure body composition, how well our body uses nutrients, and more. Data collected with stable isotopes have even dispelled long-standing beliefs about metabolism, which you will hear more about in this episode. To begin, I speak with an expert at the IAEA. I'm Cornelia Löschel. I'm heading the Nutritional and Health-Related Environmental Studies section at the IAEA. How does nuclear science and technology play a role in nutrition studies? In order to tackle the multiple problems of malnutrition, we need effective actions and interventions. And this is where the nuclear techniques, including the stable isotope techniques, come in. They can be used to assess the impact of interventions, understanding if they are effective. But not only that, they can also be used to inform the design of new interventions. Let me give an example from Morocco. Researchers have used iron staple isotopes to demonstrate the efficacy of a new iron compound, which the government has now made mandatory to be added to wheat flour. And this is now part of the national strategy for fortifying widely consumed foods with vitamins and minerals. This will help to reduce iron deficiency in the country and ultimately save costs related to iron deficiency anemia. You mentioned stable isotopes. What are they? Stable isotopes occur naturally, and all chemical elements, such as hydrogen or carbon, they have different isotopes, which have the same number of protons, but differ in the number of neutrons present in the atomic nucleus. So isotopes with more neutrons are heavier. Let me give an example of hydrogen. It has three isotopes that occur naturally. We have proteum, which is the most abundant isotope. It has no neutron. Then we have deuterium. It has one neutron and is therefore heavier. Tritium has two neutrons and has even a higher atomic mass. And these differences in the atomic masses help us to identify, separate and quantify the different isotopes and we can therefore use them as tracers in biological systems. We can also use them as a label, for instance, um, for vitamin A or protein, and it helps us to track the vitamin A in the body or the protein. 
they're also radioactive isotopes. We don't use them. We use only stable isotopes that are safe to use, especially in the mounts. We use them in nutrition studies. So other important stable isotopes are the ones of oxygen, but also stable isotopes of nitrogen, calcium, iron, and zinc are being used. What is the added value of the nuclear technique that you're using in nutrition studies? Some of the measurements can be done using conventional techniques, but the added value here is that with the nuclear techniques or the stable isotope techniques, you can improve the precision and the accuracy of your nutrition assessments. And in some cases, you can do tests that cannot be done at all with other approaches. The accurate data that are then generated can help inform the nutrition programming, can help policymakers as a decision base. You are currently running a major project on vitamin A. Why is that important? We are currently working on optimizing a staple isotope technique, the retinol isotope uh, dilution technique, that can measure vitamin A status in the body. This is important because we have still vitamin A deficiency existing in countries, which leads to um, lower immunity, more severe diseases, and ultimately it leads to blindness. At the same time, we have population groups that might be exposed to several vitamin A interventions, be it high-dose vitamin A supplementation or um, vitamin A fortification, along with better diets that include pro-vitamin A-rich foods, for example. So this nuclear technique is the only technique that allows us actually to measure if population groups are exposed to high vitamin A intakes or even excess vitamin A intakes. Other techniques can only measure vitamin A deficiency. Vitamin A is a fat-soluble vitamin, meaning once it's taken in, the excess accumulates in the body and specifically in the liver and can damage the liver. That's why we're working on these isotope dilution techniques so that it can become easier and can be used in bigger nutrition surveys and ultimately inform policymakers whether some of these vitamin A interventions that are very costly could be modified or reduced to specific age groups or even be ended. You're listening to Nuclear Explained. As Cornelia explained, stable isotopes are valuable when it comes to understanding our body and nutritional needs. Stable isotope techniques can improve the precision and accuracy of nutrition assessments. In this next interview, we will get an overview of a specific stable isotope technique and what experts have discovered about metabolism. It's well established for almost 100 years that it's an optimal amount of body fat. If you increase the level of body fat above that, you start to get all sorts of health issues. This is John Speakman. John leads research on energy balance at the University of Aberdeen and the Chinese Academy of Sciences. The reason that we store fat is 
a balance between how much energy we expend and how much energy we eat. So the difference between those two is put into body fat. So obviously understanding our levels of energy expenditure is a really important part of understanding why we might be in an obesity epidemic. So one question we might have, for example, is have levels of energy expenditure changed over time? And is that something that's pushing us towards having more obesity? Describe the steps of determining the amounts of energy spent using isotopes. How do you do that? So it's just like uh, a drink of water. So water is hydrogen and oxygen molecules. When we give enriched water or heavy water, as it's sometimes called, we've replaced some of the hydrogen with deuterium and some of the oxygen with oxygen 18. And it's just, it's indistinguishable from, from normal water. I mean, I've done the technique on myself. You just can't tell. It's just exactly the same. So you just have a glass of water. You drink it. Three hours later, it's spread through your body. And the idea was actually discovered by a guy called Nathan Lifson in the 1950s. What he noticed was that if you put deuterium into your body and if you put oxygen into your body, that will be slowly washed out over time. Whenever we pee or we sweat, that water loses isotope from our body. And Lifson, he worked out that the hydrogen is being washed out by the water that's coming through. And the oxygen is also being washed out by the water, but the oxygen's also being washed out by something else. And that is every time we breathe out, we breathe out carbon dioxide. And that also takes some of the oxygen isotope with it. And so the two isotopes come out at slightly different rates. So the hydrogen comes out because of the water. The oxygen comes out slightly faster because of the oxygen that's in water and also in carbon dioxide. And from the difference between those two washouts, you can work out, therefore, the carbon dioxide production. And the carbon dioxide production is related to your energy expenditure. What are the benefits of using this nuclear technique? With the standard technique for measuring energy expenditure, you put people in a, in a room, in a small room, and you measure the carbon dioxide that comes out of that room. Uh, with this technique, you don't have to put them in a small room. So if you want to get the energy expansion of somebody living their life in a completely free condition, then this is the only technique that can allow you to do that. What's the time frame for it? It takes at least seven days to wash out the isotope. And by about 21 days, it's pretty much back down to background or at least to a level that you can't easily distinguish from background. And so the optimum time is between about one week and three weeks. So most people do a protocol where they do it for two weeks. What are the major findings so far in applying this nuclear technique? There are lots and lots of studies being done, but they're all relatively small sample sizes. So there's not many individuals involved. And so myself and about eight other people that use the method came together and we decided to set up a database of the measurements. So we would put together all the measurements that we could find and put them into one database. And the benefit of that would be we would then have a big enough sample that we could answer some really interesting questions. We approached IAA if they would host this database, and they were really pleased to do that. And currently, 
it's uh, just gone over 10,000 measurements. So what we did was by putting all this data together, we found out things about metabolism that individual studies couldn't find out. Everybody thought, okay, puberty, that's going to be a time when expenditure is going really high. Menopause, that's maybe a time when expenditure is falling down and people are having problems controlling their weight. We put all the data together and it turns out puberty, there's absolutely no change. And menopause, there's absolutely no change. Your metabolic rate is at its highest, probably around about the age of three to five. That's when you're really firing at all cylinders and you're really expending energy. And if you've got a three to five-year-old or ever had one, you'll kind of relate to that quite well. And then after about the age of 60, it appears that energy expenditure just slowly gets lower and lower until you're in your 90s. Now that we have this database with collective efforts from around the world, what other studies do you foresee or what other studies are in progress? We really uh, recently just published some work which showed the changes in metabolic rate over time. We showed metabolic rates have fallen between the late 1980s and 2017. So there's been a slow reduction in metabolic rate by about 6% over that time period. So you might think, well, okay, that's, that's pretty obvious why that's happening because we're getting less active and we're on our smartphones all the time and we're not going out. Uh, but actually, it turns out that it's not that at all. We also measure uh, energy expenditure when people are at rest. And the difference between the two is the activity metabolism. And it turns out that actually the activity metabolism has gone up slightly over time. And what's really gone down is your resting metabolic rate. So what that means is that your metabolic rate now, as a person living in 2023, is lower than a person of your age and body composition from the late 1980s. And that's pretty unexpected, and we're not really sure why that is. Uh, but the next steps of our research will be to try and explain that effect. You're listening to Nuclear Explained. The IAEA helps countries build capacity to utilize stable isotope techniques in nutrition assessments. As John mentioned, the IAEA is also host to databases like the doubly labeled Water Database for Energy Expenditure. IAEA databases compile results from around the world to address big questions surrounding our health, like metabolism and human milk intake. In this last segment, we will learn how data obtained from using nuclear techniques are influencing nutrition guidelines in India. My name is Rebecca Raj. I'm a professor and I head the Division of Nutrition at St. John's Research Institute, Bangalore, India. We are the only collaborating center for stable isotopic research in nutrition for the IAE. How do you use the nuclear techniques to address the, the nutrition issues in India? We use isotopes across the lifespan from newborns to elderly to answer several questions, including accurate estimation of how much calories an individual needs. We also use isotopes of deuterium for estimating the body composition of infants. And this is particular to India because Indian babies are postulated to have higher body fat for a given weight, which increases their risk for long-term diseases. We all know that exclusive breastfeeding is important for the early life in an infant's child. And using isotopes, 
we are accurately estimating the compliance to exclusive breastfeeding in Indian mothers. In India, proteins in the diets are also mainly from cereals, and we use a lot of isotopes to measure the quality and digestibility of proteins. Additionally, with sable isotopes, we are trying to determine and have worked in the areas of absorption and bioavailability of micronutrients such as iron and vitamin B12, vitamin D, all of which the deficiency rates are high in India. And can, for example, body composition be measured also by other techniques? These results can be obtained from other methods such as and simple anthropometry and also the bioelectrical impedance. But these are indirect methods which you use to me measure the body composition. And also very often a prediction equation is used, which is for a specific population. The stable isotopic or the isotopic techniques, on the other hand, directly measure total body water, for example, and then we can arrive at estimates which are much more accurate and also have good precision. When we repeat the experiments, we get good repeatability. Additionally, these methods of isotopic techniques are free living, meaning we can do it everywhere as long as we give the dose or the isotope and measure the body component that is saliva or urine. What do you do with that data? How does it inform India's policies? We always want to disseminate our findings to the public and also, if relevant, contribute to the policies. The recent national guidelines have used data from our laboratories to arrive at estimation of calorie requirements for Indian adults. Also, the data from the whole body potassium counter that we have built has been used in the national guidelines to arrive at estimates for protein requirements in pregnant women. Other data from our labs with regard to micronutrients has helped to determine the efficacy of iron supplementation and has also again amended the guidelines on the nutrient supplementation in the country. The studies you do on the pregnant women and breastfeeding mothers can you talk us through the process? What do you do exactly? What kind of technology do you use? In the pregnant women, we used a whole body potassium counter, which is a machine that is measuring the naturally occurring radioactive potassium in an individual. It is used to measure the body cell mass or the metabolically active tissue. And when this becomes important is when there is a change in the fluid status of an individual. For example, in pregnancy, in infancy, all of these, when the hydration status changes, if we measure the body cell mass, we can arrive at an index of muscle mass. And measuring this across the three trimesters of pregnancy, we arrived at protein requirements for Indian pregnant women. The woman gives birth and then there is the breastfeeding period. Do you use the same technology or a different technique? Since exclusive breastfeeding during the first six months of life is critical, we use a technique called the dose to mother technique to measure the compliance to exclusive breastfeeding. It is a very simple, accurate technique by which we give a dose of deuterium isotope to the mother and measure saliva samples from the mother and baby over a period of 14 days. 
Using this method, we can arrive and know for sure whether the mother has only given breast milk during that period. Is this in any way dangerous to the mother or to the baby? No, they are totally safe, non-invasive. We give the deuterium isotope to babies even at three months, six months, and in some studies at birth. What do you see about the use of nuclear nutrition techniques in the future? Future use of nuclear nutrition techniques would be, I think, to address major methodological gaps in nutrient utilization and to elevate some of the micronutrient deficiencies and also to address the malnutrition that is in our country and in the other low to middle income countries. Another important area along with the IAA that we have started working is to look at and the use of isotopes in clinical conditions. We are already working in the area of body composition of children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. There are several other ideas which are related to other nutrients such as iron and B12, which we hope will translate the findings of these studies into clinical practice and have an impact. Stable isotopes. These non-radioactive forms of atoms are making a huge impact on livelihoods, from shaping national nutrition guidelines to determining the effectiveness of supplements. The experts have shared examples of how nuclear techniques, including stable isotopes, are helping to address major health issues, like the double burden of malnutrition. Here is an interesting fact. Worldwide, while undernutrition remains a serious concern, obesity has nearly tripled since 1975. Go to iaea.org podcast for information and resources related to this episode and more. If you want to learn more about nuclear science and technology, check out our nuclear explainers on iaea.org and follow us on social media. If you have a question or topic you want to hear on the podcast, send us an email or voice recording to nuclearexplained at iaea.org. And don't forget to subscribe to Nuclear Explained on your favorite podcast platform to learn more about the world of nuclear and how it impacts our daily lives. I'm Ayhan Evrensel. And I'm Joanne Liu. Thanks for listening to Nuclear Explained, brought to you by the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. You have been listening to Nuclear Explained.